Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be only acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> when I was younger, before I was ordained, I heard the sto- a story about the great evangelist D.L. Moody. <clears throat> perhaps this name is familiar, or perhaps not, but there is now a Bible college named after him. When he was young, he had the opportunity to preach a summer series in the evening at a church. He worked his way through St. Mark's Gospel. Week by week, he preached, and as he was approaching the end, he left the pinnacle of the story of Christ for his last sermon. But something happened that week that would change his ministry forever. The Chicago fire broke out, and he never was able to finish his sermon series. He never quite got to the death and resurrection of Christ, which is at the crux of the good news of Jesus Christ. This shaped my mind and form as I went into ministry, that at the center of every sermon should be the gospel of Christ. But I realized very early on, well, I realized within the first few years of my ministry that I had made a critical mistake. One Sunday, or one week, I was talking to a man who was going to preach for me later on in that week, and he had sat under my preaching week in and week out. And he wrote up his sermon, and I read it, and I was giving him feedback, and we got to the end, and he said, you should do the gospel. And I said, well, what do you mean by that? Thinking perhaps he was just being vague, and it wasn't my fault. And he said, well, it means that you should do the gospel. And I said, well, what is the gospel? And there was a very, very awkward silence. And I realized that although I mentioned the gospel in each and every one of my sermons, or at least I thought I did, I had not sufficiently explained it. I had not preached Christ's death and resurrection, and that in Christ's death our sin dies on the cross with him, and that in his resurrection we are raised to new life, no longer slaves to that sin. I had not made that imminently clear so that all that had heard of preaching would know Christ's death and resurrection and what it pays for, that it frees us from our sin and raises us to new life. I had failed in one way, but as I thought about it more, there was a second way in which I failed, and that is that we do not do the gospel It is done for you. Christ has already done everything that the gospel demands. He has died and he was raised. It is something that you and I receive freely. This week we finish up our series working our way through 1 Peter. And St. Peter ends it with just a little tiny saying. And perhaps if you read it, it would not seem all that significant to you. But it's important because he puts a final little bow, a final little reminder on what we are called to do. Final little reminder that we are in Christ's death and resurrection. And this 
changes everything. St. Peter writes in the last three verses of his epistle, By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends her you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. He concludes his epistle with this final reminding of the, reminder of the truth of the gospel and that we should stand firm in it. He shows us that final benefit of true and beautiful fellowship, both with one another in our congregation and throughout the Christian church. St. Peter's, Peter's epistle is indeed brief, but it reminds us of the gospel of Christ and the consequences of it. And so as I finished up this series, I want to briefly do a quick overview. Have you ever watched one of those videos of a wild animal stuck somewhere as a man or woman tries to free them and they reach in and the animal just bites and bites and bites at them? So they get a stick and they bite the stick and the stick doesn't work and maybe they put gloves on and finally they free the animal and he's off. So often this is like us in sin. We get stuck and any help that approaches us seems evil to us. Those who are stuck in sin sometimes see Christ as not their friend and lover and savior, but as an enemy who wants to do something terrible to them. And so they turn around and they're vicious and they try and bite him. But Christ died even for that sinner. Christ died for us that we would be free from that trap of sin. And that freedom changes everything. Not so that we can be like that animal who runs off into the woods, but that we would be free and raised in Christ. That we would be free to follow him. Think for a moment how amazing that good news is for you. Christ wants you to be free from your bondage of your sin, from the pain which sin has caused in your life. Christ if you are in him, has made you truly alive. Next, I want to think about how this has affected Peter in particular. Because St. Peter lived and walked with Christ, but perhaps you don't remember how, Christ, how he was before Christ's death and resurrection. Peter missed so much in Christ's life. Peter missed the point of Christ's life. If we flip back to St. Matthew's Gospel in the 16th chapter, Peter, <clears throat> Peter recognizes who Jesus is, but misses the point of, of Jesus' Gospel. <clears throat> Jesus asks his disciples who they think he is. 
And Peter responds, Peter responds that you, Jesus, are the Christ, the Son of the living God, to which Jesus responds, Blessed are you, Simon bar Johanna, Johan, for, your, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, the rock of the truth that Jesus is the Christ, Christ will build his church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail him. But then moments later, Jesus foretells his death, and Peter takes him aside, rebukes him, and says, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Peter says to Jesus, No, you will not be punished and die. But Jesus responds, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. You are not setting your mind on the things of God but on the things of man. Peter was focused on the things of the world, and he thought that Jesus would overcome the Romans and kick them out of Jerusalem, and their utopic society would return. He did not yet understand that Jesus would make them part of an even better kingdom, part of the kingdom of heaven. Moving a little further, Peter wanted to rest in Christ's glory, before Christ's ministry was done. Almost immediately after that, Jesus takes Peter and James and John up on a mountain, and Jesus is transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun. Jesus' glory, which he left in heaven, is revealed to Peter and James and John, and Peter, in his rush, says, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents, one for you and also Moses and Elijah who appeared with Jesus. But Jesus again gently corrects him and tells him that this is not yet the time for his glory to be revealed. Peter was begrudging with forgiveness. After being taught about forgiveness, Peter comes up to the Lord and asks him, Lord, how many times will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Thinking himself to be generous, he says, as many as seven times? To which the Lord responds, I do not say to you seven, but 77 times. Jumping over to John's gospel, we see a very different Peter than who we read from in, our, in his epistle this past few months. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter tries to defend Jesus. Peter has a sword which he draws, and he struck the high servant's priest as they try the, the high priest's servant. I apologize, as they try to arrest Jesus. But Jesus responds to Peter, "Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me?" And finally, perhaps the most famous thing Peter does before his death, before Christ's death, is his denial of Peter of Jesus. Peter was now sitting outside in the courtyard, and the servant girl came up to him and said, "You also were the Je were with Jesus the Galilean, but he denied it before them, saying, "I do not know what you mean." And when ye went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him. 
And she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazarene, Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know what you mean, that man. And after a little while, a bystander came up and said, Certainly you too were one of them, for your accent betrays him. And he, Peter, began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know that man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. He went out and wept bitterly. Before Peter experienced the resurrected Christ, he was imprudish. He was foolish. He wanted earthly glory for himself. And as he saw that earthly glory fading away, he denied his friend, and his Savior. St. Peter misunderstood the mission of Christ until he experienced the resurrected Christ. He wanted earthly glory. And so often, we are just like St. Peter before he experienced the resurrected Christ. So often, we want earthly glory. But Christ in his death and resurrection, has made us citizens of king, the kingdom of heaven. Christ has bound us to himself and brought us in to that kingdom. And it is because we are citizens of that kingdom, we are called to suffer well. And that is what St. Peter spelled out throughout his entire epistle. Last weekend, we buried our dear friend, Bibi, and a few of you were able to join us at that out at her camp. One of the things I don't know if you caught that her son was saying, was that it was hard to see Bibi suffer so much at the end. Bibi, as you all probably remember, or at least those of you who had the joy of knowing her, was one of the sweetest and most gentle women that you would ever meet. And so at first, Chris was wondering, how could such a sweet woman suffer so much? But then he remembered how comforted Bibi was by Scripture. And so he read to her every day from the Word of God. And suddenly he realized that maybe, just maybe in part, Bibi's suffering was so that he would be reunited with God reunited with Christ, his Savior. Bibi suffered well in the end and found joy not only in her, the word of God being read to her, but the fact that her son was reading it to her. Bibi set an example, just as St. Peter has called us to do, that we would suffer well. For suffering in the present age pales, pales in comparison to Christ and his glory, to the glory which we will experience at the end. The suffering in this present age points others to Christ as well. Because we have been freed in Christ, because we have been raised in Christ and made citizens of the kingdom of heaven, we also are called to suffer well. For it binds us to Christ and his suffering. And it shows others the glory of Christ. 
There's this saying that I don't know if it's actually true in media, but it certainly is something that is often said of media. If it bleeds, it leads. It seems that the news wants to primarily lead with things that are scary and horrible and terrifying. There may be good news in the world, but that rarely ever leads the six o'clock segment. I bring this up because the winds of the world want to stoke up fear in men and women. And Satan would have the Christian be afraid. But St. Peter's life was transformed by the resurrection of the life and death, the resurrection of Christ and his death before it. Likewise, your lives can be transformed so that you stand with Peter and with all of us. Stand firm in the faith. Stand firm in the death and resurrection of Christ, knowing that that is our true hope in a world that is otherwise terrifying. And finally, we are, re we are united in Christ. Therefore, we are united in brotherly love, one for another. <clears throat> in this brotherly love, we are called to care for those who are in Christ close and far away. When we read of she who is in Babylon, it's not some woman that they must have known, but it was a veiled reference to the church in Rome. She who is in Babylon is the church in Rome, and they care for the Christians in Asia Minor. Likewise, we pray for churches, our neighbors, whether they're up the street, across town, across the country, or around the world. We pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ, and we welcome them with an open arm. Whether they be our brothers and sisters in Christ who worship up the road at Union Church, or across town at Solid Rock, or overseas, or in other churches in our diocese or denomination, we welcome them and love them with open arms. We love them and welcome them whether they look like us or look different, whether they dress weird or normally. We welcome them and love them well. We do this because we believe in the same Christ. We do this because it is the same Christ who we have died to our sins with and rose again in. And therefore we are bound to Christ and to one another. Now we get to this phrase, a kiss of love. Those of you who are more affectionate than me, please do not try to give me a kiss of love. <laughs> Although I will accept a hug graciously. The kiss of love which we read of is a very early liturgical greeting of affection. It is calling us to share in brotherly love. It is a reminder as they shared it one to another that they were to share in familial love for each other. Likewise, you are called to share in loving fellowship, in worship, but every day. Care for one another, love one another well, because Christ first loved you.
love well, greet one another with the deepest of affection. <clears throat> and finally, the peace, peace to all of you who are in Christ. Rest in the peace of Christ, whether the world brings you joy or sorrow, whether the world brings you good news or bad news, whether the world tells you to be anxious or to be happy. Rest in the peace for all of you who are in Christ. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen.